This Sunday on Capital Connection, bills flying off the shelves in Springfield. As House and Senate committees clear a staggering number of proposals for debate on the floor, House Democrat and leader of the Progressive Caucus, Will Gazzardi, joins us to explain. So much has happened. There's a lot to respond to. Plus, time is ticking closer to that deadline to draw the political maps for the 2020s. Why Republicans want to pry that power from the hands of Democrats and give it to an independent commission. Voters are tired of politicians drawing their districts. They're tired of politicians picking their voters. And the human impact of the state budget. We hear from a mother and a teacher who saw firsthand how the state's funding for people with developmental disabilities changed their life. Why nearly 18,000 people in the state are still waiting in line for those very same services. It's all coming up on Capital Connection. From the Illinois State Capitol Rotunda, Capitol Bureau Chief Mark Maxwell is asking the tough questions. This is Capital Connection. Welcome to Capital Connection. I'm Mark Maxwell reporting from the Illinois State House on this Sunday, April 4. The House and Senate were off last week and this upcoming week, but before they left for this spring break, they passed a cascade of bills out of committees, setting up a very busy April and May here in Springfield. Joining us now from Chicago is House Democrat Will Gazzardi. A happy opening day weekend to you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, I want to start off uh, by first just getting your read. L let's go back two years to 2019. Before the pandemic sort of sidelined the legislature, uh, you were trying to advance a number of measures. These were progressive ideas in the House uh, then and now still, but uh, this idea of lifting the state's ban on rent control, on uh, trying to curb the price of prescription drugs. But I remember being in one of those committee hearings. I saw a few members swapped out for other members. I saw former Speaker Madigan's uh, staff closely monitoring these hearings, and those bills narrowly died that day. This time around, it's a little different. Take me back then. What, what, was, what was that like for you at the time? Yeah, I think um, a lot has changed in two years. Um, I think the, the, first of all, the pandemic has really reoriented people's views of the role of government in our lives and of the challenges that, I mean, I think the housing crisis that our communities are facing has been going on for many years, but I think has really exploded into people's awareness now that that uh you know tens of millions of americans can't pay their rent can't pay their mortgage um i think certainly the cost of health care and the equity or i should say the inequity in the distribution of health care has also really been front and center during the pandemic as we've seen which communities have gotten vaccines promptly and also which communities have you know been hardest hit by covid 19. um so, and of course, you know, in the House of Representatives, we have a new speaker and a new leadership team. And, um, and I'm proud to be a, a member of that leadership team as the Progressive Caucus Whip. Um, so a lot has changed. And I think uh, we've seen, we saw the Black Caucus agenda that passed last, uh, last year in early January of this year, um, really take our caucus in a bold new progressive direction. And I think we're seeing more and more of my colleagues sort of open to that vision of government. I suppose I buried the lead a little bit with that uh, first question. Uh, your bill to lift the ban on rent control passed out of the House committee and could be uh, debated on the full House floor for a vote this session. Uh, that, and I think you had something like 14 or 16 bills passed out of committee in just one week's time there. Uh, is that a, 
a factor of just two years of ideas pent up that couldn't get through the process last year, or is it because there's a new speaker who's not as prone to playing traffic cop with everyone's bills? What's, what's, uh, how do you explain this flurry of activity in the House? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact that we didn't pass any bills uh, last year, you know, um, and uh, and I think that there's obviously, as I said, you know, so much has happened, there's a lot to respond to. And so I think you're seeing legislators trying to advance bills on a number of issues. And um, yeah, I mean, happy to talk more specifically about this lifting the ban on rent control piece. But um, but generally, you know, I think that the um, the committee chairs uh, have been given a lot more sort of oversight and, uh, and leadership capacity in the new administration. I think we, Speaker Welch has really empowered um, leaders, members of leadership and chairs of committees to play more of a role in the vetting and is not quite as hands-on himself as Speaker Madigan and his team maybe were, um, which I think is uh, sort of allowing some ideas to flourish that maybe weren't able to get oxygen in previous general assemblies. That's interesting. Let's look at one of those ideas, this idea uh, of, so right now, Illinois bans local governments, cities from setting a cap or a, a control on the price that landlords charge their tenants uh, on, for rent. Uh, so this bill, should the House and the Senate approve it and the governor sign it, would allow cities like Chicago to tell landlords, you can't charge more than X for rent. Do I have that right? Well, it's more that they can't increase their rent by more than X percent. Um, so it's not about what they're charging, but it's about how much the rents are going up. And, and yeah, I mean, I think it's, you made a really great point, which I think people miss in this because we talk about rent control a lot. And I think people's minds race right to New York or San Francisco. But actually what this current state law says is that no city anywhere in Illinois can constrain by any amount the, the increases that landlords can put on their tenants, right? There's no, we can't do any ordinance that says landlords can't raise the rent by 50% or 100% from year to year. None of that is allowed. Um, so there's a really sweeping preemption that the state passed in the 90s. And I think, you know, what we wanna do is just lift the ban and allow municipalities to think creatively about how to strike a balance between the interests of landlords who are dealing with rising costs and property taxes and the interests of renters who want stability in what they're expected to pay. So if this bill passes, it would not immediately set in place rent control. You'd have to go to the city of Chicago, to the city hall, and get, you know, aldermen on board. You'd have to have people say, okay, we want to do this. But at the same time, you mentioned earlier some of these effects of the coronavirus, and people aren't working downtown as much. People are working at their Chicago job from Scottsdale or from Miami. They're, 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 they're in an Airbnb logging online, and the prices of rent, especially in, in the, the luxury neighborhoods in Chicago, are largely dropping. Yeah. So how, like, what, if, what effect would this have? Well, right. I mean, I think you, you put your finger right on it, which is to say that uh, if this bill were to get signed into law tomorrow, literally nothing would change for anyone. Um, it, and, you know, the municipalities could look at the current conditions and say, well, actually, geez, we really don't think that things are that bad. And so we don't want to pass any sort of increases or limits on the increase of rents. Um, and that would be totally at their jurisdiction, which I think it should be. You know, I think these are properly matters that should be regulated by cities and cities should be able to have these conversations. Um, I think that 
a concern that I have as someone who lives in uh, and represents a community that has undergone a lot of rapid changes and, and gentrification in the last 10 years is that as the economy recovers and things open back up and people are able to move again, that we're gonna see a real explosion in housing prices in some of these changing neighborhoods. Um, and that that's gonna leave people at real risk of being exposed to major rent increases. When the landlord says, well, you've been paying 800 bucks a month because it was Corona, but now that the economy is back open, I want 1500 and if you can't pay it, I'll find somebody else who can. And we've seen that story time and time again in my community and all over the city and something's gotta be done about it. It is interesting to watch. There are a number of different surveys and studies out there about the people who have struggled to pay rent themselves as this uh, eviction moratorium uh, expires in, in the coming days and, and months here. Uh, that's going to really create uh, a, a lot of turmoil and real conflict and struggle for people, but also an interesting sort of uh, social or economic experiment where, where you know, we, it's, it, there, we don't really know where this is going to go, do we? I mean, it's going to be interesting to watch. That's right. And, you know, um, in addition to sponsoring this bill, I'm the chair of the housing committee, which we just started this year. It's a brand new committee in the legislature, and I think very, uh, very apt, you know, fitting for this moment. And you're right that this, when that moratorium gets lifted, I think um, it's going to expose a lot of people to eviction. So our goal, uh, we have a number of policy goals in this area, but on the specific question, our goal is to get as much of this rent relief that we're getting from the federal government out the door as quickly as possible to pay off what these tenants owe and to help their landlords pay off the mortgage that they owe and everything, right? But to, to try to minimize this huge amount of rental debt that's accumulated over the last year so that fewer and fewer people are exposed to the real sort of hardship and turmoil of eviction. We've also, I'll say one more thing on this topic, we've also just passed a measure out of the Housing Committee and the Full House, which will um, work to minimize the negative collateral consequences of eviction for those people who do get evicted, um, that those filings will be able to be sealed so that eviction doesn't sort of haunt them for the rest of their lives. And every time they go try to rent an apartment, they're turned away because they've had an eviction on their record. Very interesting. Do you want to see the city of Chicago institute a rent control policy? I want to see the city of Chicago do something in this area. Yeah. Um, I don't think that the answer that we're, that New York has or San Francisco has or Berlin or Toronto, I don't know that those are the right answers for Chicago. I think we need to come up with an answer that speaks to the specific facts on the ground here that says, we know that property taxes are increasing. We know that the cost of water and utilities goes up. We want to accommodate landlords to be able to provide maintenance on their property and cover their costs. And we want to provide some kind of stability for renters so that they know that next year when I go renew that lease, I'm not going to get increased by more than X percent. Yeah, I think there's a way to figure it out in Chicago. Won't developers chafe at this? I, I imagine that answer is obvious, but they, they might ask the question, why should government be able to tell me what I can and cannot charge for property I own? Yeah, uh, that is certainly <laughs> an argument that we've heard. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess if you think of housing as a commodity um, and something that should be exchanged in the free market and there should be winners and losers and some people should have it and some people shouldn't. Um, and this is the price of the commodity. And if you can pay it, great. And if you can't, tough break, see you on the street. If that's your perspective on the issue, then um, you're not going to think that rent control is a very good idea. Uh, but, you know, I, I, 
I believe that housing should be a, is a basic right that we have to guarantee to everybody. Everybody needs a roof over their head. And in the richest country in the history of the world, we can provide a roof over the head for everybody. And we can make sure that there's profit in it for the people who are providing that housing. And there's certainly plenty of profit in it these days. And um, I think we can continue to assure that while also making sure that everyone in our community has a place to stay and that nobody's sleeping out under the viaduct. Certainly with the overlapping populations that, that burst out the seams in places like Chicago, this issue might be more prominent, but there are also other cities where development happens and things move and neighborhoods change. And uh, this could have a ripple effect, this discussion. Uh, so it's something I think a lot of people will be watching closely. As we discuss where people live and where people are moving, I also wonder uh, what you think about this other pressing question. Who should draw the political maps for the next decade in Illinois? It's a great question. Um, so, you know, the, the Constitution uh, tells us very clearly that that's our job. Um, and I think the question isn't who, but how, um, you know, what should the priorities be? I mean, we, we know that it's going to be the legislature who draws these lines. Um, but how should we go about engaging in that process? Um, and I think, uh, you know, in years past, it's been really a sort of smoke filled room kind of approach. Um, and I think in response to a lot of what members like myself and my colleagues have been saying, Speaker Welch has really begun to embark on a very different kind of process that's going to be very transparent. It's going to rely very heavily on community engagement. You know, these two weeks that we're not in the legislature, there's probably 15 or 20 meetings across the state uh, where we're bringing in communities, we're getting feedback. Um, and I think also we're going to see a real focus and a, a, a much deserved focus on minority representation, right? Um, that I think uh, the idea of sort of draw, putting a blindfold on and drawing the legislative maps, um, we really risk the, the loss of minority representation that is required by the Federal uh, Voting Rights Act. And, um, and also that I think is just an important cornerstone of our legislature. We have one of the most diverse legislatures in the country and that's, uh, um, we have a responsibility to maintain uh, diverse representation in the map making process. Certainly, and I, and I don't know that I've heard anybody advocate for putting a blindfold on the person drawing the map, but there are people, including prominent Democrats in Illinois, who have called for an independent commission, who wouldn't have that uh, innate uh, conflict, if you will, trying to protect party interests over anything else. Do, do you have those concerns over the long term that might speak to our, our, our political system more than the short term political gain? Yeah, you know, um, I have spoken over the years with the people who are working on that campaign for an independent commission. And um, uh, my sense of those conversations has been it's been really difficult to um, to feel confident that minority interests will be protected under the commission. Um, and, you know, I've really in this area deferred to the leadership of the Black Caucus and the Latinx Caucus in the legislature. Um, and the leaders of those caucuses seem very much unconvinced that the interests of minority communities and underrepresented communities would be protected by an independent commission. So um, I think until that group can demonstrate that their, um, that their sort of process would protect minority representation, they're gonna have a really hard time selling it to Democrats in the legislature. Very interesting. Well, on the other side of this break, we'll ask State Senator Republican Jason Barrickman how he might address that question about redistricting as he pushes 
uh, the Republican uh, redistricting plan. We'll see if they have a shot. Uh, Representative Gazzardi, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, we're back in just a moment. You're watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. Welcome back. The Illinois legislature is preparing to draw the new political maps that will define uh, the next decade of who votes in which district and for which politician. Joining us now is Illinois State Senator Jason Barrickman, who's leading the charge for Senate Republicans on the redistricting process. Senator, good to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. Democrats hold all the votes. They have a supermajority in the House, a supermajority in the Senate. They have the governor's mansion. What is the Republican role in drawing the maps? If Democrats have the power here, what can you do? Well, look, this is about the people of Illinois and the millions of people in Illinois have really demanded that the map making process be done through an independent commission. Voters are tired of politicians drawing their districts. They're tired of politicians picking their voters. And they've demanded that we do in, embrace an independent process for that. The reality is uh, many Democrats have long held out to voters that they support an independent process. Uh, this is a historic opportunity for Illinois. It's an opportunity to actually uh, put in place something that has broad-based bipartisan support. Doesn't matter if you're a Republican, a Democrat, nonpartisan or otherwise, uh, the people of Illinois and the people of this country, quite frankly, support an independent commission. And so we've put that idea forward uh, but even in putting that idea forward, it, we didn't put something new in place. We took the same language that many Democrats put their name behind just last year. And we said, now that it's a redistricting year, let's do this now. Interestingly, many of the people who, many Democrats who supported this same language last year, no apparently no longer support that effort this year. I want to make sure we're being specific. You're saying independent commission. There are also calls for bipartisan commission, where it's made of an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. Which do you mean? Well, the Constitution today already provides for a bipartisan commission. Some people is, like that. Yeah, some people like that, some people don't. Ours is an independent commission. That means that the people who serve on it are appointed by the Supreme Court. Uh, they're independent of lawmakers. They're not politicians. They're not uh, you know, elected officials. And they're there to serve, uh, to provide an independent voice in how those maps are drawn. But we're looking at a June 30th deadline uh, as prescribed by the Constitution, and it's already April. Do we have enough time to give this process to a yet to be formed uh, independent commission? The, the June 30th, uh, deadline is actually a misnomer. The Constitution says that the maps have to be drawn by October 5th. The June 30th deadline is the last date in which partisans can draw a map with, that's supported with partisan votes. I don't think there's any public support for that. Uh, that date becomes irrelevant. The, the Constitution says that the maps have to be drawn by October 5th, and our process for an independent commission, removing the power that lawmakers have to draw these maps that independent commission could certainly draw the maps uh, by that October 5th deadline. And I believe Democrats in Congress in the House passed a recent uh, measure that would move the ball in that direction. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. You've got members of Congress, Democrats in Illinois, who voted 
in Washington for an independent process. Those same Democrats could be a champion of this effort in their home state. Uh, it's quite a hypocrisy that you see all these Democrats, whether it's those in, in Congress who are voting for independence in Washington but aren't vocalizing it at home, uh, the same for sitting members of the General Assembly who just last year uh, put their name behind efforts to put an independent commission in place, but won't do so this year. There's also the governor, Mark. The governor has supported independent commissions with uh, his own money historically. When he was campaigning for office uh, for governor and seeking his party's nomination for that, the governor pledged to voters that he would veto any map drawn by politicians. But if you listen to the governor today, he's now flip-flopping on that issue, no longer saying he'll, he'll veto a partisan map. And unfortunately, he's not leading the charge in putting forward an independent commission. Interestingly, Mark, the governor and others have pledged to voters that they're for an independent commission. Now they're you know, doing a 180. And I think voters ought to hold them accountable that the governor and these other Democratic leaders ought to keep their promises that they made to the voters. You mentioned uh, the Democratic members of Congress, Governor Pritzker. I would add to that list, uh, I think, House Speaker Welch, uh, who became speaker just this year, but ha has recently supported similar legislation. Also, there's this former state senator from Illinois, you may have heard of him, Barack Obama, who's also supporting that idea. So it's not entirely uh, a one-party issue. And I would also note that in other states, uh, North Carolina is an example where Republicans have gerrymandered districts to an even greater degree than what we see in Illinois. There's, there's huge bipartisan support for an independent commission all across the country. In Illinois, you point out important leaders from the, uh, you know, former President Obama, again, in the, in the Senate. Uh, Senator Julie Morrison last year sponsored a constitutional amendment to do just what we're proposing to do by law this year. Uh, the governor, Speaker Welch, uh, there, there was an independent commission in the House that in recent years garnered, I believe, 105 uh, votes in support of it, uh, almost double the threshold necessary to pass a bill. We've established that there, there, there's been broad support over the years, but you're right, this is where the rubber meets the road. Um, but I believe there's also concern, especially in a year where the coronavirus scattered where people work and live, many people opting to move away from a city, there, there, there is a lot of concern, especially in minority communities, that uh, their voices, their votes might be diluted or left out. And the Supreme Court, when every time that a political map gets passed, there are legal challenges and it often goes to the courts. The courts have said one of the things you can't do when you're gerrymandering is chop up or dilute uh, on, on metrics of demographics or race. You can't take uh, a racial minority block and just chop them up and make sure they don't have uh, a, a lot of a strong voice there. Illinois does that well. All the experts that look at redistricting, they say these maps are not competitive uh, in terms of Republican versus Democrat, but they do give mi uh, minority voters a strong and prominent say. Do you have any concerns that taking this uh, map process out of the hands of politicians would, would put that at risk? Uh, no concerns. In fact, our language, contrary to relying on politicians to satisfy concerns about racial minorities and communities of interest, we put those as priorities in the legislation. In other words, the people who would draw the maps would be bound by or mandated 
to make sure that racial minorities are protected, that communities of interest are protected, that districts are compact and contiguous. Again, we're not relying on politicians who apparently are flippant with what they will uh, pledge to voters. Instead, we put a mandate right in the bill that says these are the principles for which the map must be drawn upon. I, I think protecting, protecting racial minorities and some of the other interests that you raise are very important. In fact, so important, we put it in the bill. But when we look at the House, 31 districts are majority minority. All 31 of them elected a Democrat. Is that a question? Well, I'm, I'm making a, a point. I, I, I guess, how do, you, how do you evaluate that? What, why do Republicans uh, have a, uh, why, why is that? Why, why did 31 of 31 House districts in Illinois that are majority minority voters elect a Democrat? Well, but again, Mark, I, I don't think this is about whether you're electing a Republican or a Democrat. It's about putting in place an independent process to draw maps that are going to, in the best way possible, allow for the representation of Illinois voters, right? Again, we agree that there's principles that must be adhered to, like protection of racial minorities and communities of interest. So important that you put that in the legislation. Where the votes fall, whether it be for Republican or Democrats, isn't part of the, the, the key priorities that our bill would look at. What we know is that when legislators draw maps, the key things they look at is how do we protect incumbents and how do we protect political parties? No, neither of those things are relevant in our legislation. When you look at statewide elections in recent memory, uh, Democrats get, whether it's looking at Governor Pritzker in 2018 or uh, Joe Biden in 2020, it's somewhere between 54, 56% of the state usually supports a statewide Democrat in recent years. In years past, Republicans have won statewide elections as well. Um, but when you look at the state legislative maps in the districts, it's almost two to one Democrats to Republicans in the state. Not quite, it, almost. If you add up the House and the Senate districts together, uh, what does that tell you? Well, look, it, it shows that the maps that are being drawn by politicians aren't fair. I think whether you think Illinois leans left or leans right, uh, what we know is that there's not a super majority of, you know, kind of political strength in either direction in the state. That means that the maps that are drawn ought to provide for a significant number of competitive elections. It's about the people, Mark. The people deserve choices at the ballot box. Look historically. Uh, voters have very few choices in these legislative districts. That's wrong. It creates dysfunction. It means people aren't represented well. Uh, it means that incumbents become loyal to political parties and political leaders and donors rather than voters. The whole There's a reason why nearly 80% of Illinoisans support independent commissions. It's because they want something more out of their government. They've long not trusted that the people in charge, Governor Pritzker and the political leaders, are going to do a good job of fairly representing them in the maps, and they want to remove that power from them and put it in an independent commission. Uh, when we look at this uh, process in, in the next few weeks to come, there is one other wrinkle. Some in our audience have followed along with this, but the census data, the full census data, is not expected until September. Uh, that's just about a week or so before the maps need to be drawn. And 
Governor Pritzker has said, look, we have deadlines. Uh, Senator Kaler, uh, your Democratic colleague uh, from across town, has said, quote, we don't need the census data. And I, to paraphrase his comment, it's to listen to our communities and understand what they want to see in the map. He's saying we can represent you, we hear you, we can draw the maps based on the concerns that you have brought to our attention. How do you respond to that idea? One, that this, the full census data isn't yet available. And two, that Democrats that are going around the state talking about this issue say we don't need it. We can do the map as is. You know, you know, there's so many problems there, Mark. First of all, the deadline's October 5th. It's in the Constitution. Everyone can look it up. That's the deadline. The Census Bureau uh, first said that the data would come out in September. Now they say August, which moves it up, and it could be sooner. Um, really, A really important fact here is that the best data that is available for drawing districts is the census data. Anything that is used that falls short of that uh, accurate count of the population puts at risks at risk the communities of interest, the racial minority districts, the things we talked about earlier, because of the use of potentially inaccurate data. Um, the governor has spoken about this at length over the last few years. He spent millions of dollars going around the state telling people, you got to fill out your census data. You got to respond to these requests. It's so important that we get accurate data so that you, the voter, are counted in your government. You're counted in this redistricting process. I, I think it speaks to the partisanship that exists here. All of a sudden, you have these Democrats running around the state saying, no, you know, it really doesn't matter whether we have an accurate count. Here's what voters think, Mark. Voters believe the only reason why Democrats and the governor would proceed forward with their partisan map would be to serve a partisan interest and voters are fed up with it. They think politicians are self-serving. They think they draw maps where they draw their districts and they pick their voters. And voters all around the state of every political party say enough's enough. They're demanding that we embrace independent commissions. And I think the governor and Democrats ought to live up to the promises that they made to voters when they asked for their vote a few years ago. To borrow a phrase, self-preservation is a heck of a drug. Uh, I want to move on to the 2022 election. Right now, there are, I believe, three Republicans who have thrown their hat into the ring to run for governor. There's Senator Darren Bailey uh, from Louisville. There is Gary Rabine, a, a, a businessman uh, who has an asphalt paving or concrete paving company up in Schaumburg. Uh, and then uh, former state Senator Schimpf, Paul Schimpf from downstate. Which of those three candidates do you think has the best shot to beat Governor Pritzker? Well, look, Mark, I, I think we're early in the process. I think the priority right now for me is to get through this important spring legislative session. Uh, there's a lot of time for politics. I, I know each of these gentlemen, uh, some better than, uh, than others. I know they're out trying to make an early case to voters. But I, I do think we need, especially for me, I'm in the legislature, we need to focus on the task at hand, get through the redistricting process. We've got a budget to work through. Uh, there's plenty of time this summer and as we turn into this fall to turn towards politics right now, I think we got a lot of work to do and that's where my head is. I recognize a sidestep when I see one, but I wonder, do you see a winner in this primary field? Is there someone in this group of three that can beat Governor Pritzker? I, I think what you see is a number of Republicans stepping forward because they represent the vulnerability that uh, Governor Pritzker has. Think of this, Governor Pritzker spent three years of his life tens of millions of dollars of his own money, pitching to voters his plan to raise taxes. 
in a year when Joe Biden overwhelmingly won Illinois voters, uh, Pritzker's vision for our state, his tax increase, was overwhelmingly rejected by voters. I think voters don't buy into the governor's vision. I think they don't trust that he has the solutions to our state's problems. And as a result of that, you're seeing a number of Republicans step forward. I, I'm, I'm enthused by the, the notion that we'll have many candidates to choose from. It's a long process and I look forward to, uh, you know, learning more through it. But you still need a candidate who can win. One of the unique things about the graduated income tax debate was that there wasn't a candidate per se on the other side who could take the heat or, you know, suffer the mudslinging or be dragged through the mud in that campaign process. It was kind of like, here's this idea, and then all the opponents could just drag it. The, the dynamics in an election where it's person versus person are, are very different, aren't they? Don't you need a candidate who can win? I think we need a candidate who embraces a pro-growth message. I think Illinoisans are starving to see economic growth. They're frustrated by the fact that they see states all around the country who have seen economic growth. They look around Illinois, uh, our economy has been stagnant. They look at a governor who's been seemingly willing to shutter businesses, put millions of Illinoisans out of work, and his own unemployment office uh, is taking you know months to just hire people themselves and address the historic record number of unemployment claims that we have. I think the voters uh, over and over believe Governor Pritzker is failing. He's failing on the economy. He's failing on unemployment claims. He's failing our veterans. And so again, that presents an opportunity for us, uh, Mark. I think that opportunity lies squarely in our message. If we pitch to voters, our view on how we can grow our economy, put people to work, uh, see property taxes uh, come down, make Illinois a destination where people actually want to move here and not from here, where job creators want to come here and put our people to work. I think that's a winning message, and I think that it's one that Governor Pritzker has no answer to. Some of the ideas that Governor Pritzker passed, not, uh, not counting the graduated income tax, but like, for example, legalizing marijuana wildly popular with voters in Illinois. Many of the candidates running for office right now, the Republicans were on the wrong side of that when it came to the, the public opinion in Illinois, at least. Uh, they voted against it. You voted for it. Uh, there are some Republicans who take a, a more socially moderate stance, or maybe you'd say socially progressive stance on some of those issues. Uh, is that the kind of candidate that Republicans need to consider for a statewide office? I, I think we need to have candidates who embrace things like a free market. I, I think legalizing cannabis uh, can be done in the right way. That's why I supported it. I think that it can be done in a way that protects uh, youth, much in the way that we uh, treat alcohol. Uh, that guided that vote, but that vote was anchored in the principle that markets work and that the what we can do in government is release the markets so that we can grow our economy. I think that's a message that is embraced by lots of Republicans and lots of voters. And there's many ways that we can continue to do that. And through that, see that important economic growth that we need. Again, that's the message I think that carries the day for a Republican candidate. I know that the, you, there's a lot going on in the legislature right now. And there are things that occupy your attention, but when all that comes to an end, uh, a bunch of donors or activists or uh, party people come to you and say, Senator Berkman, would you run for governor? What do you tell them? Well, I, I've been, I hear that, uh, you know, that message and that question, and I listen to it. I tell people, 
you know, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from them and interested in hearing uh, their perspective on why I ought to consider that. I've been very uh, transparent. I've got a young family at home. Uh, what I'm interested in is making sure that our party puts forward a strong, viable candidate who, who carries a pro-growth message and can go toe-to-toe -to, -toe to a governor who I think has just failed the people of this state. And a governor who's going to have a lot of money for those campaign ads. That was something uh, I don't know if we're going to find a Republican with the pockets as deep as Bruce Rauner had. Uh, we'll see how that changes the game. It's, it's an interesting time we live in with these, uh, these very expensive political ads. Senator Barrick, with all the time we have for now, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. All right, we're back in just a moment. Stick around. Watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. Nearly 18,000 children and adults with intellectual or developmental disabilities sit on a waiting list in Illinois right now and can't get the services they need. Sometimes they sit on that wait list for four years or longer before they first get in the door. Advocates and the courts have said the state of Illinois has a legal, moral, and ethical obligation to provide those services. Earlier this week, we talked to a mother who knows firsthand how a little help can go a long way. Uh, I'll be honest, uh, when we came here, we were in crisis. We could not handle the needs of raising two boys with autism. It was overwhelming. A noisy, crowded school classroom was Dawn Williams' workplace for more than three decades. But for her son, Michael, that same environment was his personal nightmare. Just overwhelming for all the sensory needs and things. One day, 11 years ago, William said the trip to school went from difficult to dangerous. Literally wrestled him into the van to drive him to school because he wouldn't get on the, the transport bus. And he literally kicked out a window in our van and jumped out while I was driving. That episode forcing the family to make a tough call. To have to place one residentially was the hardest decision of our lives for me and my husband. It still makes me feel like I'm going to cry all these years later. But when they arrived... The blue walls, the calming lights, the comforting carpeting, there's no bells. The sensory calm of this place is amazing. They knew Michael was home. Staff in the homes is not, not only teaching them and reinforcing reading and writing and those, life, those skills, they're doing life skills. Um, Michael learned how to cook while he was at Hope. More than 10 years later, Michael has learned much more than just how to cook. Michael now is a global messenger for Special Olympics. He, he writes and delivers speeches throughout the state of Illinois. Um, he also is learning to drive. Amanda Brott is Hope Learning Academy's chief operating officer. We have a wait list all the time. She says 18,000 people with disabilities are waiting in line to get into homes like this one to get special help from dedicated staff. They are unsung heroes across the board. Their work is not easy. Helping dress, helping shower, helping feed, help depending on ability level, helping shopping and meal planning and you know, all, tie, shoe tying and buttoning shirts and combing hair and brushing teeth. But over time, with enough space and repetition, good habits take hold and what once seemed impossible starts to take place. He was nonverbal. They got his communication going, they got his verbal skills to a level I couldn't even begin to imagine possible 
um, if you ever would meet my son, you'd, you'd be amazed. You'd say, there's, there's no way that guy was nonverbal in a behavior challenge because he's not anymore. These programs, with big promise and potential, struggle to enroll new students in Illinois while neighboring states take important strides. Wisconsin, just to the north of us, uh, just closed out its waiting list. Josh Evans with the Illinois Association of Rehabilitation Facilities says Illinois ranks 47 out of 50 states in funding programs for people with disabilities. Levels so low, courts had to step in and issue a consent decree ordering Illinois to increase services. For the last five years, we've been found out of compliance with that court order by the court monitor. A court monitor said the state's dire financial situation resulted in a reduction of services and substantial suffering for people with disabilities. Governor Pritzker's budget this year calls for an extra $77 million in funding for these programs, but advocates say that's not nearly enough. They're calling for more than four times that amount, $329 million in the budget they want to see to start cutting into and reducing that wait list to help get people with disabilities the services they need. We'll continue to follow that story and that issue as we get closer to the final making of this year's budget here in Springfield. We're back in a moment. Watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. That does it for us this week. Thank you for joining us. As always, our full extended interviews are up online and now available in podcast form. Well, we hope that you'll check those out. Until next Sunday, for Capital Connection, I'm Mark Maxwell. Stay connected to the Capitol all week. Follow us on Twitter at CapConnectIL or watch reports from our Capitol team on WCIA3. You can also find us on Facebook or WCIA.com.